everyone. Welcome to the Bold Beautiful Borderline podcast. I'm Sarah and I'm here with my fabulous favorite co-host Lori. And today we're going to talk about substance use as it relates to borderline personality disorder, which I'm 60 days sober today. And that's really exciting. So yeah, I think I have a lot to say on this topic, but I also think Lori has a lot to say in terms of her own different experiences. Well, congratulations on your 60 days. That's super exciting. And I'm so proud of you. It's incredible. So it's interesting for me because Sarah and I have a very different like experience and relationship with substances. So I, I do drink on occasion, but I like I can confidently say that I've never had a problem with substance use for, I don't know when the last time I drank was like probably like two or three months ago. And like, I just like, don't even notice, you know what I mean? Whereas like, I know for Sarah, it, it was like an actual like issue. And so I don't know, Sarah, do you want to talk about like your experience with substances and like what made you want to be sober? Um, yeah. So without, you know, putting too much out there and we can edit this out or you can obviously decline to answer, but I don't know much about like your family history with substance use. Like, is there, do you have any people close to you with substance use disorders? No. I mean, like, are there, are there potentially a few people that like drink maybe a little too much, like maybe one, but to be honest with you, like I have seen my parents intoxicated like twice in my entire life. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to talk about my parents, but my, both sides of my parents' family, heavy, heavy, heavy alcoholism and drug use, uh, specifically opioids and heroin and alcohol. So I was raised knowing that, and I was also, also raised around alcohol. And I can confidently say that I qualify for a binge drinking disorder, alcohol use disorder, And it's weird because like my thing is I don't wake up in the morning and crave liquor, but I cannot just have two drinks. I've always had 10 drinks or 12 drinks or, you know, like I've blacked out more times than I could ever count slept in my own vomit, slept in my own urine, slept in bathtubs. I've unfortunately had moments, although it's been years since this has happened, but I've unfortunately had moments where I drove myself home and I don't know how I got there. Um, I have had quite a few therapists over the years mention it's maybe time that we look at like trying some sort of sobriety or like harm reduction model to using less substances. Um, but I, I mean, I'm an alcoholic, like I'm an alcoholic. I don't like, I've never liked to be high. I've, I've literally like tried almost no drugs, but there's just something about alcohol for me that is if I'm going to a bar to have, you know, people are like, let's go out for a beer. And I know that for me, let's go out for a beer turns into six. And it was really evident in the divorce because 
Tori and I were in the process of our separation and we went up the street to our corner liquor store, which everybody who listens to the podcast knows I love Portland potato vodka and grapefruit. That's my thing. Um, so we went up the street to the liquor store and for whatever reason, like she got a half gallon of Portland potato vodka, but I was like, I want Long Island iced teas. So I got a half gallon of what I needed to make Long Island iced teas. And I went through that half gallon in four days. I remember watching because we both got a half gallon. I remember watching the liquor just be like draining so fast in mine versus hers. And I mean, granted, this is a really painful time, but in my separation, I just started binge drinking. Like, I mean, September till when I got sober, I was just binge drinking so much because like it was the thing keeping me away from the pain of the divorce. But so, if I trace my drinking behavior back, like I had my first blackout in a in a um, middle school playground when I was fourteen. Wow. So yeah, it's it's it was kind of like zero to a hundred, right? Like you you've never that was the first time I ever drank alcohol. And what about the second time? Like, because I mean, sometimes like preteens are stupid and they just drink too much. Like, was that like the first time of many at that age? Oh yeah, I mean there was. There was a lot of parties where I would be in the bathroom or the back room throwing up before I got a ride home. In fact, I was 18 and I was throwing up in a bathroom and I like really needed to pee and I couldn't get off the floor. And my boyfriend at the time had to call his mom to come get me she was like the only person that could get me off the floor and it's just mortifying. Right. Like I remember kind of coming in and out of it. And I remember kind of thinking like, I'm making my way down through this party with a mom and I'm 18 and I'm so, so, so drunk, but I was always able to just laugh it off as like the funny girl or the loud girl or the, you know, the cute girl or the like, you can't touch me. Cause I fucking know who I am. Like I'm, you know, and the thing is, is that I surrounded myself with people who had drinking behavior similar to my own. And so mm-hmm. while I was always a little bit more than their drinking behavior, it wasn't that uncommon. I spent all of my, I mean, a ton of binge drinking between 18 to 21. But once I hit 21, it was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday at the same dive bar for years. And I remember like, I got my rent paid. And then I was like, we got to go out to the bar tonight. I know there's a $50 bill around here that my grandma sent in a birthday card. If we can just find this $50 bill, we're going to be able to get Coors Light and fireball shots, you know? Yeah. And like, I think that's the thing, right? Is we demonize, we obviously I don't demonize, but like society demonizes people who use drugs, but then they glorify people who drink alcohol, which is a drug. And right. So, I mean, nobody's going to bat an eye if you go to the bar five days a week like oh it's a social thing oh she's just like a regular you know whereas if you were doing heroin every day after work people would be a little bit more concerned about it whereas alcohol is so dangerous yeah and it's interesting because I was 21 and I moved to the city where I didn't have any friends and going to the bars was the only way I knew how to make friends. Right. It's also the only way I knew how to feel confident enough to like flirt with people and have sex with people. And then it just became a big part of how I wanted to unwind and how I wanted to have fun. And, but going back to the dangerous part thing, I, 
Lori knows I tried to get sober. I was sober for like eight days in January. And then I started drinking again. And then I got sober 60 days ago. But I 1000% was going through withdrawals. And I was in bed for like 36 hours, maybe literally couldn't get out of bed. I was so sick. Um, And I was taking a medication to try to reduce my the severity of my cravings, which the name of is not coming to me right now. But I think like, I haven't been really honest with people about how bad my drinking behavior was. Even this last year, I mean, I was drinking White Claw and driving every night. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, but I'm that's, sober. That's the thing, right? Like, I'm so proud of you for being sober, but I mean, and I remember how sick you were, like you were really fucking sick and like, I don't even live near you. Right. But just even just hearing how sick you were and like, it just felt impossible. Right. But now my understanding is you, other than this last couple of weeks, you feel really good. You know, you've been able to go through a lot of shit in the last couple of weeks without needing to drink. Yeah. And that's the thing too, is like, okay, so I've been sober for 60 days, but there was literally one day I had like a craving, like I was craving liquor. I was craving vodka. Um, I don't have cravings. Like it's not about the, the, it's not about the actual alcohol. It's about the sadness. It's about the feelings. It's about the wanting to disappear. You know, alcohol is a really good way for us to disappear. And we want to disappear a lot when we have borderline personality disorder. Like, let's just be real. So you just said the depression or whatever you said, the sadness. So do you find that drinking makes you less sad or does drinking just, you drink so much that you end up just blacking out and not thinking about it. I drink more when I'm sad and it helps me to have that instant dopamine rush. And I think that's the difference between people who don't have an alcohol or a substance use disorder and people who do like they're like you, right? You could have a cider or two ciders and it's not going to impact you the same way it's going to impact me. And I think my understanding anyways is Genetically, I just experience more dopamine from the drug than you do because I come from, I mean, four generations of alcoholics and drug addicts. And I and I mean like hepatitis C from intravenous drug use, yeah, like- living, living unsheltered, uh, being in prison for several years. Like there was a lot of drug use and alcohol use in my family. Yeah. And that's an interesting comparison because I was just kind of reflecting and I don't think if I were to be sad, I don't think I would really ever turn to alcohol because it doesn't make me less sad. Like if anything, I just get kind of like meh or like tired or more sad. Right. So it is probably that just like legitimate genetic difference where for me, the only times that I like feel like I you know, need to drink, which is not really the case would, would have been when I was like, you know, sleeping around a lot. And I just like kind of needed to do that to loosen up. I don't feel like that anymore now, like at all. Have you ever been addicted to anything? Food. I mean, yeah, that's real. Um, Um, I just, yeah, yeah, that's all. That's that's very real, but not not a substance. Other than food, I mean, that's a substance. But you know what I mean? Like, not a drug. 
a mind altering substance. Yeah. I, um, so I smoked cigarettes for 18 to 23 and I smoked a pack a day of camel menthols, sometimes like 25 cigarettes, a little bit more than a pack a day, which is weird to say millennials don't consume nicotine the same way that boomers did. And certainly the generation before, uh, Gen, excuse me, Gen Y, and then certainly boomers. Boomers smoked a lot of cigarettes, but that was kind of weird. Like I, I was, I remember thinking, I have no stronger friend than the cigarette. Like the cigarette is always here for me. I love, I love this camel menthol. Like there's nothing I want to do more. The first like moment I wake up and the last moment before I go to bed. That is how I felt about alcohol too. At one point it was like, nothing makes me feel as good as this fresh squeezed cold vodka on ice with a little bit of grapefruit. And it was always weird because like I noticed my drinking behavior, not only was I drinking more than my friends, but I was ordering doubles. Right. It was just an easy way to impulsive. So did you find, did you find that you were always drinking with friends? Like for you, it was a purely social thing or were you also drinking alone on the days that you weren't being social? Um, my binge drinking through the divorce, I drank alone the entire time. Right. Okay. I mean, to be fair though, it's the middle of a pandemic. So like prior to that, would it have been like that? Yeah. I mean, I was alone a lot in my marriage, but I, I definitely, so here's my thing is I have no problem hopping up the street to my local dive bar and getting fucked up and then stumbling home by myself. Like there's an old man next to me at the bar. I'm going to spark up a conversation. You know what I mean? I just will find social opportunities in drinking. Yeah. And it's easy to do, right? Like, I mean, even if you think about, I mean, not even dating, but like now um, we're kind of allowed to go outside and see people. And the first thing I want to do is go to a patio and have a drink, but I don't actually really care about having a drink. Right. Like, and that's the difference. That's where like the last couple months of the pandemic has changed for me is like, I, I just like don't tolerate alcohol very well. So like I can have half a mimosa and be like, I need to have a four hour nap. And so for me, like, it's just become that drinking isn't fun for me anymore because I get so tired that I just like, there's no point, but at the same time, it's so ingrained in our social framework that, oh, Hey, let's go for a drink. There's nothing that you want to do more than have a Bellini on a patio or like sangria on a patio. Like that's like the beginning of spring. You know what I mean? And yeah, those are some froofy drink story. You are obviously not an alcoholic. I am not. The fact that you just like drink vodka by itself is absolutely disgusting. <laughs> I mean, on ice. Well, that's <laughs> you, I, you know what? A lemon wedge and a lime wedge. If I went and grabbed a shot of vodka right now and you watched me do it, you'd like die laughing because I could not. I would not. I would get like it near my face and be like, this is the most disgusting thing I've ever smelled. I can't do it. Okay. Again, lemon and lime. Even that. I don't even think, I can't even really do vodka cran. Yeah. I don't know what to to tell you then. I (laughs) listen, (laughs) like you put it in front of me. I'm going to drink it. Like. 
The only thing I won't drink is gin, and that's because when I was 18, I drank an entire fifth of Seagram's gin warm, and I went to an underage gay club, and I danced on the stage, and I fell off, and I hit the concrete floor, and I pulled my best friend Navi down with me, and he hit the concrete floor, but he also hit a pole on his way. That's a weird... There's a pole in that story, too. He also hit a pole on his way down, and he got a hematoma on his hip. Like, giant blood clot. Like this. Oh, my big. God. Jesus. So, see, gin just rubs me the wrong way. I think it's worth noting that the differences, again, between you and I are, like, uh, more uh, just a... Not that you haven't experienced trauma. You absolutely have, but a more in-depth trauma history, right? Trauma mm-hmm. biologically rewires the brain. Um, and my sexual trauma specifically makes it sometimes hard to like interact with men in the just sense of a hookup. And so like liquor made that easier. Yeah. I was actually wondering about that when you were first talking and, and again, like I wouldn't, Anyway, I don't want to go into sexual trauma pieces, but um, no, we don't have to. Yeah. But, but like for me, it was more just, I think, I don't know. I used to for sure only drink and have sex. Like that was when I was, especially like with people that I didn't feel comfortable with. Um, Like there were probably years where I didn't ever have sex, not drunk. You know what I mean? But now that's not the case. I couldn't care less. But maybe that's And I think that that's something that a lot of, especially women with borderline personality disorder can relate to. You know, it's like if you want the intimacy, but you have this deep self-hate, how do you accomplish the intimacy? Well, you erase the hate by giving yourself a drug. Yeah. And the body image issues. And, you know, there's all of those pieces for sure. And I'm thinking back on people that like I genuinely disliked and I was like, well, I'm going to have sex with them anyway. So I may as well be drunk. You know what I mean? Like, cause I just was like, I actually despise you as a human, but like, here we are. So it's the easy way out. But to me that never led to like a substance use issue. That was just like maybe a person issue on my end. Yeah. I mean, sometimes when I hear us talk about some of these things, it's like, they are so fucking heavy, right? Like so much sadness comes back to this deep sense of self-hate yeah like I wonder what I wonder what my life would have looked like if I hadn't have experienced that self-hate I mean sure I'm genetically predisposed to have a substance use disorder but what if I liked myself and I was like there was space made for me my whole life would I have had a substance use issue I don't know Right. It's like, yeah. would, would you have been having sex with people you didn't like? Probably yeah, not. I guess, I guess that in itself is a little strange. Right. But common. I mean, it's not uncommon for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those things where like, I know, you know, there's the whole, like, does marijuana cause schizophrenia thing? And it's like, well, not really, but like, if you're predisposed to schizophrenia, marijuana might trigger it. Right. So like same yeah. with substance use, like you, very well could be like biologically wired to be more likely to have a substance use issue, but then the compounding traumas that you experienced as a kid or, and, or the situations that you were presented with led you down that path that you're now kind of fighting against. Right. I think it's also worth noting, like 
I'm still holding out hope that someday I can consume liquor in a more appropriate manner, which probably just further indicates my substance use issue. Um, but no, I don't think it does. I think it's the exact opposite actually. And I was just going to ask you that question or I was going to wait till the end, but we can ask it now is like, your goal is not to be sober forever or is it? I think if I want the best life quality possible, my goal should be to be sober forever. That being said, man, it's hard for me to imagine a life where I never go to another country music festival and drink all day, like with my friends. You know what I mean? I, I love that. I would miss that. Do I miss drinking every day? No. Do I miss, I sure as shit do not miss drinking White Claws and driving, but like the occasional drinks at the gay club. Fuck. That's great. But are you able to have the same experiences and not drink? So it's, and that's where I'm at is like the times in my life where my binge drinking has been out of control has been, of course, positively correlated with the most chaotic events happening. So my divorce from Tori, the end of my engagement from Mackenzie five years ago. I mean, those were times in my life, really, 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 really heavy drinking behavior. There's also been times in my life where I've had a super healthy relationship with alcohol. When Tori and I first started dating, it was, it's kind of hard to know because I was deep in my eating disorder still. So I was afraid of alcohol. But when Tori and I first started dating, I was running a ton. Like I was, I ran a marathon every or a half marathon every month, the entire first like two years of us dating. So I was training a lot and like, I just had a lot going on and I was hardly ever drinking. Um, when you say you were a way better relationship with alcohol, when you said you were afraid of alcohol, was that because of the calories? Yeah. Okay. Just, just wanted to clarify. Thanks. So I don't know. I think there's potential for potential for it, like a healthier relationship with it. But for now, I just think that this is what's best. And I also like my mom has an autoimmune disorder that I increased my likelihood of developing by 50% by drinking alcohol. So thing I was kind of keeping the back of my mind too, of like, I really don't want to trigger any kind of, uh, rheumatic episode. Um, right. That's, yeah. I mean, that's funny. Cause that's the exact same thing we were just saying, right. Where like you, you may be predisposed, but you may never end up with it, but there are things that may trigger it to get worse. Right. So that makes a lot of sense. And actually, now that you say that, um, I know that people who have their, um, who have been drunk or blacked out prior to their 16th birthday have a much higher likelihood of developing a substance use issue, which again, I was 14. Hmm. Interesting. I would be curious, obviously you can't do an RCT on that, but I would be curious to know, like, if that's because people who are more likely to have a substance use or like an addiction challenge are more likely to start drinking earlier. Right. Because I mean, like I didn't start drinking until I was like 18, probably. Yeah. I actually just pulled a 2018 journal article, which we can, I will link to in the show notes, but Binge drinking is the dominant type of alcohol misuse in young people. It typically begins in adolescence with the prevalence of binge drinking increasing sharply between 12 and 25 um, years old. 
although young people drink less frequently than older adults, they tend to drink more on occasion. This increases the risk of shit. It increases the risk of a lot of things. Oh, totally. Injury, health issues. Sexual assault. I'm trying to find the statistic of developing a substance use disorder in adulthood, but um, nonetheless, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it would be interesting. Like, I have no doubt that that statistic is correct. It's just, it'll, it would be interesting to know, like, what other factors are in there, right? Um, yeah. Should we talk recovery? Yeah, I want to just quickly talk about harm reduction. So I find uh, in the work that I do outside of this, there is a big demonization, for lack of a better word, of substance use to the point where it's like, it's, you either are an addict or you're not. And there's no like middle ground. And so as someone who lives in that middle ground of like, I can have a drink and it not be a problem and like legitimately have a drink and not have it be a problem. I just want to clarify that that is also okay. And that obviously like it's an individual journey and like, it very much depends on what, what you're able to do. Right. So like it's the same with any addiction, right? Like you may be able to go to the casino and only bring $20 or you may not be able to even look at a casino and go in. Right. And so sometimes substance use can look like, or sorry, sometimes harm reduction can look like, okay, well, Sarah was having two or like six double vodkas a day. And now she's having two singles a day, right? Like it can just be limiting. It doesn't need to necessarily be fully cutting out the substance. And personal, personal, um, choice and all of that, but just wanted to kind of say that it's not one or the other, right? Like you don't, you can live in that middle ground, which is ironic because normally I, I'm a black and white thinker, but I just, I just have a lot of conversations in my career that are about, if you have a drink, then you are therefore an alcoholic or whatever. And it it's not true. Yeah. And I don't, I think I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> like, yeah, no, totally. And you can't like that, like fine. Right. But not everybody is. No, no, no. Yes. Yeah. And that's not where I was going with this. Um, I think like I could have healthier behavior drinking and I'll still be an alcoholic. Does that make sense? Like, sure. I can develop systems and put them in place for myself. And that's not going to change the fact that I'm an alcoholic. So I think that that's like, there are people that have substance use issues that do drink or use more preventatively or proactively than, than other people. And that's what harm reduction is. Right. I mean, who says that, who says that I'm don't get to drink. I mean, nobody gets to determine that for me. Yeah. And I think that's where in my job I find it's challenging because some people like think that they can right so I mean it's the same with like um in Canada they recently or in BC at least they recently changed some legislation around like being able to force children into treatment I don't agree with that force children into treatment for what like addiction so like as a mom I could say my kid needs to go to treatment and it's it there's I mean there's a whole debate that could be like a entire podcast. For but. what age? Cause can't, can't 
kids there consent to their own services over the age of 13 or no? Uh, I, I don't remember the specifics to be honest, but anyways, it's, it's a whole thing, but like trying to force somebody to be sober can happen in a power dynamic. Right. It, anyway, it's very complicated and I can't talk about all of it on here. Um, but yeah, anyway, it's just, it's just interesting, but yeah, let's talk about recovery. What does that mean to you? What does that look like to you? Yeah. I mean, I think going off of that, it's exactly what you said, right? Recovery is not going to, nobody is going to determine that it's your time for recovery. That's why it never works when anybody wants to like sit people down and have a, have a family, whatever they call intervention. Yeah. Some sob story intervention, like cool. Like if my parents had sat me down and been like, Sarah, you need to stop drinking. I would have been like, bitch, pour me another, like, until I decided it was me and it was for me and it was for my health that, you know, um, and for me, I remember it was a Sunday night. I think I was like eight or nine long islands in, I stumbled upstairs. I called someone on the phone that I didn't want to call. It was a really awkward conversation. And I remember being like, just flooded with shame. Like I hadn't felt so much shame in so long. And I thought to myself, how do I, like, I started hearing myself doing the, oh, I was normalizing that. Oh, we, they're going to shake it off. They know you're drunk. People do this. And then I was like, wait a minute, Sarah. Like it was this weird wise mind moment of the only way to stop feeling the shame is to stop drinking. It was a serious come to Jesus movement or moment. And I think most people have to have that if they want to if they want to commit to sobriety, you have to have a reason why you're doing it. And for me, it's like uh, no more shame. I couldn't possibly feel any shame anymore that I'm bringing on myself. There's a, there's enough out there circumstantially through the divorce and through everything else. So any further shame is like, I can't handle it, but I think it's really important for people to the classic stuff environment, stop spending time with people who binge drink or, you know, use substances notice the impact that like the people around you have on you. That's huge. And of course there's like, especially now with zoom and everything, God, you could get on AA or NA every hour all day long if you wanted to. So being willing to go to some of those. Um, And the weird thing about AA is it's all Bible-y and churchy and that's sometimes weird, but like just replace the word God with something else and and just go listen to the stories and feel that sense of community. I think that's really important. But I fully support a harm reduction model. Like I said, I hope to someday drink again if it can be more adaptive and healthy. Um, I fully support like decriminalizing substance use. I don't know if, what it's like in Canada, but we just voted to decriminalize this last session. For all drugs. Yeah. I think Vancouver, like the city of Vancouver is working on, I mean, we're like the people that work in mental health and substance use are all working towards that. Um, but of course there's, there's different, uh, opinions out there. (laughs) So like, for example, like I live in a very conservative city. I there's for a while that my city I live in was like, had something that said they were officially a harm reduction free zone. (laughs) which is insane. (laughs) So like 
any safe injection sites have to and be. I like, understand that like Narcan oh. will save their nephew's life. Well, that and like harm reduction is seatbelts, condoms, like vaccines. You know what I mean? Like, like what? Anyway, so um, it's it'll be a while until the city that I'm in uh, is interested in that. And then the political party federally is um, not ready to make that commitment, (laughs) but I think that it's coming and I can assure you that everybody in the mental health and substance use field is advocating very strongly for that because BC has been destroyed by the overdose crisis. It's been unreal. Yeah. I mean, it's only happened in Oregon. We're the first nationally to do it if I recall correctly, but yeah, I think because the co-occurring diagnosis of BPD and substance use is so high. It's important that like all of our DBT programs are substance use and trauma informed. I think that's happening and that that's going pretty well for people. I know when I was in DBT, it was possible to get drug counseling services in DBT as well. Like you could go to groups specific to substance use, drug use. You could go to groups specific to eating disorders, like those kinds of things. And I really appreciate that about DBT. I That's think really like cool. using the skills. Yeah. I think using the, the skills that we learn in DBT is like one of the best ways to stay sober. Honestly, like I'm constantly fact checking. Well, yeah. And I mean, DBT has started being used pretty heavily in substance use and eating disorder treatment. Right. So that makes a ton of sense. Are, do you find that substance use is often a exclusion criteria for treatment in the States? You know, that's interesting. I would say that depending on the severity of a person's substance use, and the same goes for their eating disorder, they might receive treatment primary to that and not actually receive treatment for their BPD, which is concerning because it's generally the BPD that's the underlying cause of the substance use or the eating disorder. But the BPD won't necessarily take someone's life, whereas like the eating disorder certainly will, and the impulsivity around substance use certainly could. So... Mm -hmm. Which is why it's great that they have those options where you can be doing both like concurrently, right? Because yeah, I don't, that was for sure not an option that I was offered, but of course I wouldn't have been offered that option because I like didn't have a substance use issue, but I don't think that that option. What about an eating disorder though? It never came up. I've never been diagnosed with an eating disorder. So, I mean, I have one. I just have never been diagnosed with one. Okay. So it's not on Um, my file. Yeah. I, um. At the time I went through DBT, I didn't need substance use treatment. So I don't know what it's like to go to those groups, but they do have them. I think that just it just shows the importance of really administering like strong, comprehensive biopsychosocial as clinicians and really getting to the root of the substance use because we're all drinking or drugging for a specific reason. Totally. Yeah. And same with the anger and all that, all the symptoms of BPD are come down to the same thing, right? I was just going to say a few things about as somebody who doesn't have a substance use issue, um, how I have been kind of on a journey to realize that like, I'm not, I haven't been doing everything I need to, to be supportive of those around me to be sober and to, to not like normalize substance use in every way if that makes sense. I'm interested to hear where you're going with this. Well, like, for example, so of course, like, I'm just going to ignore COVID right now because it's not relevant because it doesn't, I haven't been social in a year, but my, like, I love throwing parties. 
favorite thing in the world is to host parties. And a lot of our parties, like we'll have a beer pong tournament at our party. And like, we play this game called beer baseball, which is so much fun. But like, if you weren't drinking, you wouldn't be able to play beer baseball. Right. And so like things like that, where just the friend group that I associate with myself with, I wouldn't say that there's anybody in my friend group that has like a serious substance use issue, but we completely normalize substance use. And to the point where if I were trying to be sober, I probably wouldn't come to the events that we host because I would not come. Yeah. Because it would be impossible to. And, and so I've noticed that in the last couple of years and been like, okay, I really need to change this in our group of friends. Right. Um, and it sucks. That's be- not just you, Lori. Society teaches you to do that. No, totally. I mean, the cool kids in school through the best parties. You know what I mean? Like, that's just what we've done. Yeah, no. And I totally agree with you, but I'm just saying like, I have in the last couple of years put myself like made myself think about it because I don't have to think about it. Right. Because I don't have this problem. So like I can go to a party and say no to a drink or say yes to a drink. And it doesn't matter either way because I can stop after one drink or I can stop after five and it's not a big deal. So it's interesting because I kind of stopped drinking just because I just don't really care anymore. I just like, I'm not into it. And if I was at a friend's house, it's still like, Oh, like have a glass of cider. It's like, Oh no, I'm good. No, no, seriously, just have one. No, I'm good. And, and like, I'm sure I've been that person before. Like I have no doubt. And I think in the last couple of years, I've not been that person as much, but it's definitely like prevalent and just being somebody who just like, didn't want to have a drink that day. I can't even imagine how hard it would be if you're like legitimately trying to not drink at all. I was just wondering if you can relate to this idea though, as someone who has an eating disorder. hundred percent. Because we normalize food so much at our events. And I didn't go to a single event for like almost a year when I was starving myself because I was so afraid to be around food. hundred. So that, I mean, there's no question. I can a hundred percent. I've, I've not gone to every, everything because of that you know, oh, well, I can't exactly measure my food. So how am I supposed to go to this and like have dinner at somebody else's house? Or like, oh, what if they have dessert there? And I can't like, totally. But I think because dieting is unfortunately approved of in, uh, I mean, that's changing, but people are cool. I mean, it's even celebrated. Yeah. I'm a fat person. People want me to be dieting. Right. So like, if I was to go to somebody's house and say, oh, I'm doing Weight Watchers or, oh, I'm not, or I'm counting my calories, that wouldn't be questioned. They'd be like, oh, good for you. Whereas if you said, oh, I'm not drinking tonight, they would be like, oh, no, have one. It's fine. Right? Like, it's just crazy how different it is. And so the, so, I mean, I haven't had to think about it too much because we haven't been able to do anything fun, but like, the next time we have a party or the next time like we go out to my cabin and play beer baseball, like I'm for sure going to have an option where like you can have whatever drink you want, right? Like so that you can still play and not feel excluded. And like the bartender that we hired for our wedding, for example, on his, like the front page of his website, it said like, I make sure that there's like cool, fun, non-alcoholic drinks for people that have 
like that don't drink because it's not fair that they're just drinking juice. They're not children. And I was like, okay, that's who we're hiring. I literally have been so anxious thinking about your wedding. Like I've been like, there was, I was going to relapse. It's going to be Lori's wedding. Yeah. I think you've said that. And I'm going to try really, really, really hard for that not to be a situation where you feel like that needs to be the case. Like, of course our bartender, I literally didn't even look for other options. Aaron was like, Oh, do you want to look for other quotes? And I was like, Nope, that's the person. If that's on the first page of a bartender's website, this is the person I want. No question. And again, like, I'm sure that we're going to play beer baseball at the wedding, not at the wedding, but like the day before or whatever. And like, I'm going to make sure that I have a conscious way to make that inclusive of people who don't drink. Cause that's not fair. And like, we shouldn't be glorifying drinking and excluding people who don't. Cause that's stupid, but it's, it's like really hard to do because it's like so ingrained in our culture, <laughs> like so ingrained. So I have to like, I shouldn't have to actively think about how I can, like navigate this as a host of whatever, but I do because it's like the assumption is that you'll be drinking, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's what we do at all of our holidays. Like that's what dinner party holiday. Every time you ask somebody to go hang out casually, it's, Hey, do you want to go for a drink? Like literally, I mean, it's either go for a coffee or go for a drink, but if it's after five, it's going to be a drink, you know? Yeah. And that's a really weird thing of like starting to date again. Everybody is like, do you want to get a drink? And I'm like, actually I do not. Yeah. And like, I mean, you could go get a diet Coke wherever you go get a drink, but like literally so awkward. They bring it to you in like a children's cup. Well, like, that's what I mean. Right. Like it, it shouldn't be awkward. Cause like getting a drink could imply getting whatever the fuck you want, but like, it doesn't, you know? I've done that only once. And I said to the lady, can I get a grapefruit with a lemon and a lime? And I specifically was like, no vodka. And she did like a double take. And I was like, I just want grapefruit juice with a lemon and a lime. Feel free to throw in some sparkling water. Please do not bring me vodka. And she was like, okay, yeah. And she brought it back to me. And I was like, Jesus Christ, this guy has like a glass and I have like a plastic cup. Like, (laughs) Actually, even for that? Yeah. Like, and I was like, gee, like, God, does everybody need to know I'm a fucking drunk? Like, come on. Yeah, that sucks. And it's also, it's like, okay, well, I'm not going to go on dates with someone who wants to go get six beers. Like, if you want to get a beer with dinner, of course, please have fun, dude. Get two. But like, it's with dinner. Like, I'm not going on a, I'm not meeting you at a bar. You know what I mean? And yeah. that's that's what dating is now is let's meet up at a bar. Yeah, totally. That's interesting. Like, do you think that at this point in your life right now, and of course you're 60 days sober. So like, this is a very much like fresh, fresh journey for you. But like, do you think that you could date somebody like long-term that used alcohol? Yeah. I think if they, if they're appropriate with it. Right. Yeah. For Um, sure. But if they're partying every weekend, no. Yeah, I mean, and if they drink alcohol every night, no. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't date somebody at 28 years old that partied every weekend either. <laughs> I mean, that's just like, I couldn't, I wouldn't do it. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting because 
it would be easier if they're sober, but also I think it's worth noting if they're sober too, then the likelihood of us trauma bonding is higher. And I do not want to trauma bond with someone. Yeah. And it's like similar to, I mean, I know you and I both love peanut butter and I know that both you and I have problems with food or have had problems with food. So I can, I have no, we've never had this conversation, but I'm, I can guess that you have been a person that has said, I can't have peanut butter in the house because I'll eat it. 10,000 times. Yeah. So I am. That's that actually, I've never, I don't know what it's like to binge. I've never had a binge eating issue. I've never been on a binge. But I imagine if I were to ever develop some sort of binge eating issue, it would involve an entire jar of peanut butter. Yep. I have, <laughs> I have a story that I'll just go into now while we're on it. Uh, you know, Adam's peanut butter, is that a thing in the States? It's like the natural. Yeah, it's yeah. the oil at the top and you you mix it in. Yeah, it's a lot it, of work, dude. It is way too much work, yeah. Um, but it's like a glass jar. And so I remember one time I was like in a binge and peanut butter, it was my go-to when I was living with my dad. And like, he would, he would literally hide peanut butter, like in his like sock drawer because. Tori hid the peanut butter for years in our house. Yeah, totally. And I'm actually super proud of myself. I've had a jar of peanut butter in my house for like six months and I, it's like barely used. Cause I just like, don't need to worry about it anymore. Uh, anyway, I was at my dad's house and binge eating peanut butter and I dropped the jar, the like Adam's peanut butter jar and it shattered cause it's glass. And I literally stood there bawling my eyes out going like, do I try and eat around the glass? What do I do? And I was just like, like weeping. It was crazy. Right. You know, so it's like, do I have a substance use issue? No. But like, do I kind of get the vibe? hundred percent. I almost well, ate that's glass. Why I asked, that's why I asked if you were addicted to anything, because my love of alcohol doesn't come close to my love of cigarettes. I mean, I love cigarettes 10 times more than I love Portland potato vodka. Camel menthol fucking like I've given you so much of my money. Sponsor us. Like, that's what you said about the vodka. Me. Sponsor um, me. Like I used to, every payday, I would run up to the um, reservation because that's where the cheapest cigarettes were. And I would get a carton. Like I'd get a carton and it'd last me about eight and a half days. And then I'd start going to the gas station for a week. And then we'd cycle back to the carton on pay. Do you still smoke cigarettes? Oh my God. No, the taste of it. Oh, oh. The taste, oh, the smell, oh. But when I drive past someone smoking a cigarette, I literally think to myself, you fucking bitch. Like, fuck you. Like, I get mad that I, I'm not smoking. Because truly, there is nothing I love more in the world than to flip a pack of cigarettes over, pack it, rip off that fucking, like, cellophane label and hit the little crush to give it the extra menthol, put it between your lips and light it. Oh, bick me. Oh, Oh, it's, it's just like, it's pure euphoria, dude. It is pure euphoria. Like there's nothing I love more. Hmm. I've and never it was, was that not the most dramatic? Like, like I'm like, I could, I could feel it. Yeah. That's crazy. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life never had the urge to, but I do love the smell, which is super weird. So I'll stand next to smokers on purpose. Yeah. I had my first cigarette when I was 14 
Damn, I was doing a lot of crazy shit at 14. But you know what's weird? So the reason that I, so I have this like really, really awful fear of throwing up. Like this like legitimate phobia of throwing up. And it took years to get over, not over, I'm not over it. But like, anyway, very, very, very serious phobia about throwing up. You better not get COVID. You don't throw up with COVID. Oh, fuck. (laughs) I thought I was making a joke. No, (laughs) Um, I better not get COVID because I don't want to get COVID. But, you know, anyway, I have this like intense fear of throwing up. And so legitimately, no joke, this phobia of mine was a protective factor my whole life. Because what happens when you drink too much? You throw up. What happens when you, in theory, when you develop a purging behavior? Yeah. Well, to be fair, I, yeah, we'll get into purging behaviors and <laughs> our eating disorders episode because that's a whole other story. But um, every, they always say like the first time you smoke a cigarette, you throw up. The first time you do that, that's what they said when you were in high school. I don't find That is know. not what happens. Okay. Well, I don't know. But either way, like those things I never did because of this fear of throwing up. Right. So it's like been this really weird protective factor. That's an awesome protective factor. I mean, I'd, I'd love it without the anxiety, but you know, it's fine. Yeah. It's yeah. It's still a good protective factor. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I like, it's just, it's like an interesting one. Cause it's like, a, it's yeah. Anyway, it's weird. I wasn't expecting us to make so many parallels between substance use and ED. This is interesting. I mean, it's, it's an addiction. It is. It's totally yeah. an addiction. It's either an addiction because you have a binge eating disorder or it's an addiction because you're addicted to control. The behavior of control. Because when I when I heard your story about crying, how do I eat the peanut butter? I remember I was at Stadium Thriftway in Tacoma, kind of headed towards North Tacoma. And I, the entire day, maybe like a shake in the morning. And it was before my 6.30 class, I'd ran like six miles on my lunch break. Like every time I stood up, I'd see black and like almost pass out. I'd have to grip onto things whenever I would transition from like seated to standing or laying to standing. And I went to Stadium Thriftway and I was like, I am so fucking hungry. I need something. And I went through that entire store looking at the carbs and the calories. And I just started bawling. Like I was like, I can't eat a sandwich because the, even if I get one piece of bread and they cut it in half for me, it's still going to be like 80 calories. And I was just like, I'll take a piece of caramel and a sparkling water. And I just like was hysterically crying on my way to class. Just so addicted to the counting behavior. It was so scary. Borderline yeah. personality disorder is so weird, dude. Yeah. I mean, eating disorders are fucking weird, too. Like, So is substance use, but they're all tied together. It's no, like this, of course. this weird web that is our mental health. And it's like the chicken and the egg and the spider web. Well, it came first, but they're all interconnected and woven together. But I truly believe if you get to the root, which for me is the self-hate, if you can start to target the root, everything else kind of comes with it. Yeah. And to me, it's just straight up emotion regulation. Like, I think I'm just biologically wired to not be able to regulate my emotions. And food helps you regulate. Totally. Yeah. And so does so does counting behavior. So does exercising too much. So does like all of those things. Yeah. Regulate. 
That's interesting because I don't use alcohol to regulate. I use it to numb. I don't use food or lack of food to regulate. I use it to numb. I mean, numb, <laughs> control, shrink, shift, make small. How many hundreds of ways can this disorder show up? 300. I think it's 264, but that could oh. be wrong. It's a lot. It's just so funny because sometimes I feel like you and I are like a carbon copy of one another. And then in other ways, it's like, God, we couldn't be more different. I know. It's so fascinating. And that's, I think, why I love people with BPD so much is because we always have something that connects us, but there's always something that is so unique about each of us. Because the uniqueness is, like, amplified because we're just, like, amplified as people, you know? Yeah, I just can't get down with the cats. You'll get there. That's what Aaron said. Now he's obsessed with Mr. Norris. I love you so much. I hope all of our listeners find this episode to be helpful in some way. I definitely want to make sure that people know that the stories that I talked about are not me glorifying substance use. None of it sounded like that. I think sometimes our impulsivity stuff and our sex stuff, like sometimes that can sound like glorifying just because we have to laugh about it or else we'd cry. But I don't, I mean, I didn't take any of what you said about substance use as glorifying. Yeah, because I definitely know that the media glorifies it. Like you can laugh at funny drunk stories or whatever, but nothing is worth your health and safety and the health and safety of your community. Right. I mean, I have to live with the fact that I potentially put other people at risk in my drinking and driving. Thank God, nothing ever happened to them. Thank God, nothing ever happened to me that um, we will have. Yeah, totally. For everyone listening, we're going to have a ton of substance use resources in the show notes. So give that a go. Um, And don't forget if you, um, If you are in DBT and at least in the States, a lot of programs will have substance use and ED related groups. So um, give those a go as well if that speaks to you. But Lori and I are going to record a full eating disorder episode. And maybe since we had this one today, Lori, um, whenever this goes live, maybe we should just try to have the eating disorder episode follow. Yeah, I guess I have to get ready for that. I'm like, literally, that's the one episode I'm the most worried about recording. Oh. Okay, so I scratch that everybody. We're gonna meet <laughs> we're gonna meet Lori where she's at and we're not gonna do that. Well, we could. I, we'll just have it, it's gonna be a tough one for me. So good luck everybody listening to that. but I'm not hiding anything. I'll, I'm you know me, I'll share everything. I just that is the one part of this experience that I'm not over. Yeah, which is fine. that's I'm there's no problem with that. It's just like that one makes me the most uncomfortable to talk about. Yeah. Well, everyone, we love you so much. We don't know what episode will come next. Um, (laughs) But thank you so much for listening and uh, following this sobriety journey with me. If you all have been listening to episodes from the very beginning, you've heard me off and on in the sober stuff. So here I am, 60 days. Honestly, wouldn't be able to do this without my sweet little love, Lori, who's just so cute. If you guys could see her with her giant, like... (laughs) beats headphones that are like as big as her face they look like earmuffs or something she's so cute i can't even look at her 
<laughs> right back at you. You and your broken nose. So cute. <laughs> Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey, and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about Borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.